You are listening to Your Pod and Your Staff, the podcast of College Life Christian Fellowship at UC Davis. I am Peter Nittler, the college pastor of First Baptist Church in Davis, California, and our mission is to shape college-age people from all spiritual starting points into complete and equipped agents of King Jesus. And on this podcast, we want to have conversations that will accompany our Tuesday night Zoom gatherings, and we hope that they form you, encourage you, maybe even make you laugh, and that they would actually be a source of King Jesus guiding you through this time. So you've probably heard these phrases, don't kick me when I'm down, don't rub salt in the wounds. So say what you want about society. We seem to collectively understand that one should never, under basically no circumstances, intentionally make a bad situation worse. Like when someone has had a bad day, that is not the time to tell them that they have bad breath. So then why, in the middle of such a collective hard season, you may ask, are we choosing to talk about other terrible and hard things? Are we just kicking you when you're down? What could possibly be gained from this? Why not talk about happy times? What was once great and can be again. Is this supposed to help? Well, I guess I hope so. So in this episode, we are walking back in time with Stanford Gibson as our historical tour guide to revisit other catastrophic historical events in the timeline of the people of God and see then what we can learn about how these might affect the lens through which we're looking at our present reality. And I might be a weirdo. Sure. But this little history lesson actually felt to me strangely like good news. And I hope you feel the same way. And this conversation also acts as a bit of a pivot point and a providential segue for where we're going for the next few months as we begin to explore the New Testament letters together. And we didn't plan this when we planned it four years ago, but this is actually a perfect time to be reading the letters. These letters were written in a turbulent season, and we will be reading them in a turbulent season. So I hope they bless us, particularly now. And of course, if you have any questions about all things College Life, just visit our website, collegelifedavis.com, or download our app, College Life Davis, on the App Store or Google Play, and I'm sure you will find answers to all the questions you might have. All right, let's go back in time. Enjoy the podcast. All right. Hey, Stanford. Welcome back to the podcast and all of the people listening in. Welcome back to your pod and your staff. It is good to be talking to you again. Hello, Stanford. Hello, Peter. Um, Let me tell you a little bit about my morning, Stanford. So I was supposed to get up at 445 in order to finish prepping uh, for this here conversation. You're a bona fide grown up. I am. I know. This is what grown grown up age is like. Yeah. And so Mason, who's a pretty good sleeper, usually sleeps pretty much till seven every day. But he decided that he was going to get up at 420 today. So I got up a little bit earlier. And yet, you know, all this seems like this is a sob story, but it's not. I was actually excited to get up and talk to you about hard stuff, about hard things, about bad, terrible things that have happened in the history of the world. And I'm sort of wondering, <laughs> why? Is there <laughs> is there something something wrong with me? And I think I realized that like everyone else, my human contact is less than it used to be. And so much of my human contact is when I go on these little walks with Mason in the morning and I see all the cars driving by and you know I wave to the people who are walking on along the neighborhoods. And it is unbelievable how strong the pull is in all those conversations to just talk about the weather. I, it was It's such a cliche about small talk, but it's unbelievable how when there's a little, there's hello, hello, and then when there's a little pause, I have this compulsion to say so, something like, oh, beautiful day, huh? 
or something like, ah, pretty smoky still, huh? And so maybe I'm just excited to talk about something real, (laughs) something significant this morning. So how are you feeling about coming together and talking about hard, bad things? Yeah, I think you're right. You know, I was still up later than you because I don't have infants, but uh, you know, I I was running on the green belt by 5.30. And it is interesting that everyone that was out there today made a similar decision to run at an air quality index of 130, um, which is a marginal decision but also decided to get up super early before it got higher. And so we all had that in common. That's common ground. But uh, I think there's a reason that I'm a little bit drawn to low probability catastrophic events. So low probability catastrophic events, things that don't happen often, but are very, very, very bad. That's right. Things that don't happen very often, but when they happen, they're bad. And um, it's because that's kind of what I do professionally. You know, once people realize in college life that I'm not actually a pastor, which usually takes students a little while, <laughs> there's this kind of vague sense that Stanford does science. And there, we don't really talk much about what I do, but that is kind of what I do. I simulate hydrologic and atmospheric systems um, to build numerical models of very bad things, big floods on big rivers. And, uh, you know, what I've been doing recently is um, these, you know, giant debris flows that happen after wildfires. You know, you get a wildfire, it it clears off the the vegetation, it hardens the soil, and then a a pretty modest rainfall will generate this almost supernatural, what we we call non-Newtonian events. We go out there in the aftermath and it's literally moved boulders bigger than cars. And one of the things that I find is that whenever something really bad happens that has to do with hydrodynamic flows um, anywhere in the world, like I'm kind of morbidly curious. I, I feel like a little bit like an ambulance chaser. Um, wh- you know, one reason is because, well, I'll probably be working in that location on that event in the next year. Um, yeah, so right, it's just right, like, right. oh, that's what I'm going to work on next. But also I'm just like, I'm really curious in how these things work because I want to like be helpful with the next one. And so there is this sense in which um, I am drawn to when I see kind of historically or in the scriptures or in other ancient literature, these low probability, high consequence events where, you know, really bad things happen, not just on the personal scale, not personal tragedy, but like on the community scale that I they, they capture my, my imagination and they kind of catch my attention and they, they make me feel like, huh, maybe we should think about how to respond to these community. And maybe this is part of the, the Christian story and how God desires his people to respond to these sorts of things that the, uh, that the world that we live in throws at us. That's so interesting. Yeah, I, you know, you describe that most people have this vague idea that you do science, right? So I've known you for like 11 years now. And that's pretty close to my understanding of what you do is just that you do science, right? So let me ask you a question. You know how the, the people talk about with like counselors and therapists? It's like, are you able to like go home at the end of the day and not be wearing all the problems of your patients and stuff like that? Do you feel that with like the problems of the geological world that like you are interacting with tragedies and catastrophes all the time? Do you go home and be like, how how do I live a normal life with my children yeah, here unfortunately, now? Unfortunately, I get pretty into the math. And so when I see one of these catastrophic events, Events, I tend to like see beauty in it, which is which is a little dark um, yeah. because I tend to see them as aspects of creation. But if I go visit the field, if I if I'm working on a particular event, I try to go to the community and what you end up talking to the to the local leaders, and then it it, it humanizes it and it just raises the stakes too. Yeah, I bet. So the reason we are talking about bad things, not just because we want to be masochists in the 
in the early hours of the morning. But because you are given a talk on Tuesday night, the second Tuesday night of the year, and you know we are sort of in this process, or we are in right now a an example of a low probability catastrophic event with the pandemic, and I mean with the fires too, higher probability I suppose than the pandemic. But anyway, we're in this like sort of rare, turbulent, turbulent time. And we decided strangely to also talk about other really terrible times. And somehow this is going to be, I think, sort of good news and comforting, or at least helpful. But so that's why we're talking about this, revisiting terrible, terrible times that have happened in the history of God's people. And so can you give us just a brief recap of maybe what you're you're talking about for, for the College of community just to get back in the flow? Yeah, well, to jump off what we talked about last week, one of our goals is to help you develop affection for the scriptures. And I just think that's one of the biggest gifts the college ministry I was in gave me, you know, is this idea that this is a story that we get to read ourselves into throughout our lives. And it grows in beauty and complexity um, as we interact with it. And so over the course of the four, four years, we deal with you know, kind of the, the narratives of the Old Testament and then the prophets and then the gospels. And then we're kind of left with the portion of our scripture, you know, we call the letters that we were doing this year. And we kind of asked the question, is this what we should be doing? Yeah. Is, is this timely? You know, are we just kind of pushing ahead with what we planned to do four years ago? Mm-hmm. And the more I read the letters over the summer, the more I realized their time was really turbulent. These are letters written into low probability catastrophic events. And so they're letters for a turbulent time. And so the more I read them, the more they seemed to make sense. You know, these letters were written in the 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s of the the first century. And if you think about what's going on in that period of time, these letters are written to places, first of all, that are under this kind of giant Roman oppression, right? There's a new superpower that's kind of taken over the world um, and everyone has been owned by them, right? And so there's this, (laughs) there's this just undercurrent of oppression everywhere. But, you know, in these particular places where there's being written, there's kind of this, this riling revolt, you know, in 66, Jerusalem revolts. And so you kind of think about, you know, we're feeling that politics might be particularly turbulent in our time. Just picture yourself in Jerusalem in like 63. There's this giant Roman hegemony. There's, you know, Roman soldiers in your town, but also your buddy wants to revolt against Rome, which, spoiler right. alert, didn't go well, right? And no, it went no. really poorly. And so like half your friends are like, hey, let's just keep our heads down. Oppression sucks, but you know, we can't fight Rome. And half your friends are like, hey, we're going to take on Rome. And you're like, dude, I'm not sure that's a good idea, but it sounds fun. Uh-huh. Like, so your friends are just not getting along. If there was Twitter, they'd be yelling at each other. And then you you add to that the ethnic tension at the time is that you had these series of conquests that literally intentionally tried to subdue cities by ethnically mixing. They would take people from one city, move them out, and move people in from the other city. And so there's this constant sh- racial shuffling going on in these cities. Yeah. And so there's a city like Antioch, which literally has walls separating the ghettos. And so like the early Christians in Antioch were, were sometimes called the wall crossers because they were the ones that they would go from one ghetto to the other because they had church. <laughs> they, they, were, yeah. they were the only ones that crossed the walls because they, they joined in these Christian communities. You know, throughout the letters, you have the, the racial tension of the 
Jews and the Gentiles. Right. And you know, one of the major themes that we'll talk about is that the diversity that the early church is trying to bring together is kind of one of the great traumas it goes through. The thing that made me think about this is that then you have 79. In 79, Pompeii erupts. And, big volcano. Um, know, big volcano. I don't know if you know much about the, the geologic context of Europe, but Europe's not exactly a ring of fire. We're not exactly talking about Indonesia or even the Pacific Northwest. Volcanoes do not go off in Europe very often. <laughs> um, and so Pompeii erupts, takes out a couple of like major cities. And also the thing that made me think about this is I'm reading um, letters in the context of this eruption and I'm sitting out on my back porch and the sun's rising and it's just pink yeah. because the air is the air quality so bad from the fires. And I realized like this, the haze of Pompeii, people thought that was the end of the world. They literally thought the end, the world was ending. And, you know, people are, use apocalyptic language about the fires in the sky. And there is this sense in which people thought that was the end. And so the, this is the context that these letters are being written into. You know, a context of people seeking justice from oppression, a context of racial tension, a context of political uprising, a context of literally bad air quality. Right. And then a couple of years later, you have the plagues. And, you know, Rodney Stark talks about how the plagues were potentially the turning point for the church and how, where the church really began to grow. Mm-hmm. And so there's a sense in which these letters were written into a time that's very similar to ours. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let me see if I can bullet point them from even just what you said. So there's the general bullet point of hard times of just that Rome is occupying them. Yeah. And these people are oppressed by, by an oppressive regime. Right. And then add on to that, there's this like there's a, a racial mixing. There's a, a, a conquering and a mixing and a forced mixing that, that just adds complexity and difficult dynamics to life. And then there's this massive volcano that erupts and destroys like some cities and peoples. And it looks like and feels like the end of the world. Oh, and the Jewish revolt. And the political tension that would rise from do we fight Rome or not? Right. Right, 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 right. And you can imagine, like, you only do something that, quote unquote, foolish, because you can't beat Rome if, you know, the pressure has just built to the point where it feels like there's no other recourse than to try bringing your sticks and your stones and trying to, you know, defeat the massive empire. You know, there's there's no way you win that fight. So there's no, the, the only logical way to imagine you come into that conclusion is if it is so bad that you're forced to to do something ridiculous, you know? That's right. And so what, what ends up happening is... I- Obviously, they lose. Rome wins. And they come in and they actually, they raise Jerusalem and they destroy the temple. Yeah. And so also, there's a sense of loss. There's a sense that this story that I've been part of for millennia is ending. There's a homelessness. There's a literal homelessness. There's a spiritual homelessness. And the AQI is really bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And so the more I read these letters and the feeling of tension of intercommunity tension, of political tension, of spiritual unmooring and homelessness, the more it felt like these actually are timely documents yeah. that um, they're, they're spoken into an era pretty similar to ours. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so trying to like get back into the mindset of these people, the temple being destroyed feels like a very big deal, like, like a like really big deal, like a um, existentially big deal. Like, obviously, Pompeii is a catastrophic and existential big deal, too, you know, but to to have to feel like the story that not just you, but your ancestors have been living for millennia is ending would be the height of hopelessness. Like, it would be different than someone coming and setting fire to FBC, which would be obviously devastating in 
a ton of different ways. But, you know, N.T. Wright talks about like the only way that he would be, he could not be a Christian is if someone came and showed him Jesus's bones and said, look, he did not rise from the dead. You know, it's the only way he could ever change his mind, basically. And it seems like it would be on the level of that, of saying what you thought was true this whole time is, is not, you know. I think so. And we, and we talked last quarter about the prophets. And, you know, there, there's this passage in Ezekiel where the Messiah comes to the temple. And so, like, the existence of the temple, and we see this in kind of contemporary Middle Eastern politics, the existence of the temple is, like, part of the story of God's eventual redemption as a people. And so that's one of the reasons that we're getting way ahead of ourselves, but that's one of the reasons that the Christian community as the new temple of God through the Holy Spirit, through the redemption of Christ, is such a big theme in Paul's letters because he's writing to a people who are saying, well, what happens in, you know, with the loss of the temple? Is, is this story over? And Paul's actually saying, no, this story is actually just beginning. And I think you're right. Like the Understanding the the turning point um, of the loss of the temple in seventy, you know, it's the closest contemporary analog I can think about is you know, is nine eleven, which you know it's getting. I guess we're getting to the point where students don't remember that in real time, right. but it was an event that affected the nation. Yeah, um, and now now consider that that was actually the center of the whole community's faith. Yeah. That's the kind of event that yeah. these letters are written around. That's interesting. That really is interesting. I do still feel like, speaking of 9-11 just really fast, I have this working assumption that every single person on earth right now remembers that, like was yeah. alive for it. Just because it was so, it feels so tangible in my memory, you know, as such a as such a stark moment. Obviously, that's nothing new for someone who was alive for it. Right. But I, it, to the point where like, like my sister was born in 2003 and I think she was alive for it. Like, I think she must have a memory of something that happened in 2001, which she does not. <laughs> Most certainly does That's not. That's not how memories work. No, 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 no. And, and so is this the list? Is this the big fat list of the big bad things that have happened? One other thing to throw on top of that is, okay, so Rome's in charge, right? Rome is the oppressor. But there's a sense in which, you know, people are talking about Pax Romana, the fact that, you know, there are people who are like, okay, Rome sucks, but um, we're doing better economically. And so um, there's a sense in which people are identifying with Rome, as especially the citizens. Can you, uh, um, can you real fast, what the Pax Romana? Uh, the idea that, okay, Rome has come conquered everything, but in conquering everything, they brought peace, right? Yeah. Which is a very complicated moral idea, but we'll yeah. just leave that aside. So we're going to conquer you. We're going to conquer you. And then through our conquering, we will give you peace. That's right. That's yeah. right. The citizenry of Rome had actually kind of bought into that idea. And there's this sense in which, okay, um, Ro Rome is a conquering hegemon, but there are conquering hegemon, right? And they are, you know, building roads and whatever. There's a sense in which okay, we've been conquered by Rome, but at least now is a time of peace. But there's this growing threat on the horizon um, yeah. that they would call the, the Parthian horde. And essentially the steppe people, the horse people that are in the Northeast, the Parthians warred with Rome for a thousand years. Um, they were always, you know, Rome's enemy on the Northwest border. What's happening at this time is that these are horse warriors, which it was a little bit intimidating. Um, you think of Mongols, but, you know, many years later that uh, fire bow and arrows from their horses, which is already intimidating. But what's happening now is that the Parthians are going through a period of technological advance uh -huh. and they're learning to armor their horses. And so there's actually a fear throughout the Roman Empire that the Parthians are going to go through some sort of like technological step function and they're essentially going to invent tanks.
tanks, biological tanks, organic tanks, but tanks yeah. nonetheless, right? Yeah. We're not talking about the Middle Ages here. You know, knights eventually happen and they end up being really powerful. And so there's the concern that essentially the Parthians are going to develop proto-knights. And when you read Revelation, sometimes it seems like they're talking about these technological future you know, innovations and people think they're maybe talking about like actual tanks and helicopters in the last days or something like right, that. Right, 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 right. They think it's, yeah, way future. Yeah. Right. There's a lot of scholars that think they're just talking about like the technological innovations of the Parthians, that they're mm. going to actually put metal on their horses and run through the Roman Empire. And so there's this growing concern that, okay, not only is Rome bad, but actually we're going to get conquered again. And this new conquering horde, they're not going to be interested in building roads. We're going to be in the crossroads of two battling hegemons again. And so this uncertainty of not only are we oppressed by Rome, but now we, we may be looking at a new oppressor is also in the mix. Okay. So let me see. So we have Rome who's oppressing them and and, and that's bad. That's no good. Yes. He, and and so now there's this threat of like, okay, well, there's these Parthians in their tank horses <laughs> right. and they're going to come down and potentially over, they're going to try and overtake Rome and we are just going to get caught in the crosshairs between these battling superpowers and none of this is going to be good for us. That's right. And if you think of the geography, both Israel and then the Turkish and what we would now call Turkish and um, what they called Asia Minor and Greek churches that Paul is writing these letters to, you know, they're on the front of Rome's battle with its northeastern um, enemy. And so, you know, if the Roman citizens are worried about the Parthian horde, these folks in these churches, in these cities on the front um, are terrified. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, okay, so we're talking all about the the really tumultuous times that the the this first century people group is is going through. And I will be honest that my sort of emotional response to this is something like comfort. And I, I I would love to dissect that a little bit. Like what's going on in me? Right. What's happening? Do you feel the same way? Like, obviously, you're sort of fired up to talk about it. You're excited to talk about it. So do you have any, uh, do you want me to try and unpack my psychology first? Or do you want to try and unpack your psychology first of why this feels sort of good to hear? Yeah, why don't you tell me level? how you're feeling about this? And then I'll... Okay, okay. So how I'm feeling about this is that for some reason, it is helpful to me to know that the people of God have gone through horrible times before and have made it. And I, I think that what I am feeling is there's a certain sense that there's a lot of acute pain right now and an acute feelings of turmoil and anxiety and depression and all sorts of just like really hard things to be going through right now. And all of that sort of is demanding to be felt. But then there's also this like level of like existential dread that can come from like, is the world forever changed? And does that mean that life is ending the way we knew it to be ending? Does that mean there's something fundamental about life that's that's changing and different and we'll never get back? And like that creates this like existential dread of like what's happening to us, not just what's happening to to me, but what's happening to us. And then if, if you add on like, a, I guess, a Christian level, it's like, where is God? Why isn't he doing anything about this? Why does he seem to be apathetic? And and again, that sort of contributes to this existential dread of like, am I just alone in this? Like what good is sort of what good is a relationship with God if it's not solving the issues? And but then if you sort of 
Google Maps zoom out and you see all these other different parts or spots on the people of God timeline and you see really horrible events, which I'm not interested in litigating, which is worse and which is better. It's just like acute pain is happening, acute fear, acute anxiety is happening. And I'm sure that there's a temptation for existential dread every single time something cataclysmic happens. There's a temptation to feel like this is fundamentally changing everything and fundamentally threatening my worldview, fundamentally threatening what I think is true about the world, how I think God works. And to know that this has happened before and many times, and again, I'm not interested in litigating which one's worse or better, but like a lot of bad things are happening in in what you're describing about the first century. And to know that the people of God not only made it through, but obviously have been through seasons of flourishing since then, you know, it's, it, it makes me feel like the scope of history can still be trusted. Like we're still getting to new creation. God is still in control, even though these moments of acute pain are very real and very frustrating. And like scriptures are full of people who speak passionately and painedly about their their current pain. But I think it, I guess what I'm trying to say is it eases that existential dread. It eases and soothes the feeling that this is all sort of going to hell and this is as bad as it can get. And if it's as bad as it can get, that must mean something pretty terrible for the future. And um, so I I wonder if that's part of my (laughs) emotional response is like, oh, okay, this isn't surprising to God. This isn't um, too big for God. And this isn't too big for the people of God. I think that's half of it for me. Half of it is just this idea that we are part of a resilient story. Yes. You know, and I, I think we saw this in the prophets as well. The prophets are full of, you know, God's people experiencing existential dread through, you know, low probability, high consequence events, and, you know, God speaking peace and comfort and wisdom into those events. Um, But I also think that it's just helpful to understand that we live in this kind of world. And this is a feature, not a bug. And so like just this last week, we got a a paper published on ice jams. And, you know, ice jams are when a river breaks up the ice, sometimes the ice forms a dam. Mm-hmm. And then that will cause flooding because, you know, basically it's jammed up the river. And so this community had a huge ice jam flood and they brought us in to kind of help them think about how to, how to deal with it. And one of the things we did is dendrochronology. We took cores of the trees. And what you can see is you can see the scarring of past ice jams in the rings of the tree. And then you Mm -hmm. can count the rings in between and you can actually see how often this happens kind of on a multi-decadal scale. And, you know, one of the things that we found was that this river jams all the time. Oh, Like that these sorts of ice jams are, it's part of what the community is going to have to live with. They're either going to have to engineer or come up with some sort of social modification in order to deal with these ice jams because it, it's just part of how the system works. They're, yeah. they're going to have to learn to live with it. And I feel like understanding that there are all these all of these pathways of social upheaval and that embedding yourself in a community that is resilient to social upheaval, that's part of a you know six millennia story of you know God's redemption with the earth, is part of how you live resiliently in a world that has these recurring and hard to predict low probability, high consequence events. Yeah. It's interesting because when at first when you said, you know, this is just like it's helpful to know the way the world works. You know, it's helpful to know what world you're in and that this is a feature, not a bug. And I think what feels hard sometimes is like in anything else, I would I would not purchase this product if I knew that these were the features. And, you know, if I was buying a new computer and they said, this is a great computer, it's really beautiful, 
a lot of the times, but sometimes it just blows up and doesn't work. Sometimes by design, it will be terrible for you. It's like, there's there's no way I buy that product. So it's weird because on some level, it's like, oh, that's sort of devastating to know that we have that kind of product. But I suppose no matter what worldview you have, that is the world we're in. And so it's helpful to know that the particular story you're living is resilient to those particular massive hurdles, you know. And this is this is a bigger question sure, that we've yeah. tackled before and we'll tackle again, but basically every worldview has two problems. Yeah. Every worldview has a problem of evil and a problem of beauty. And more pessimistic worldviews struggle with the problem of beauty. They can handle the problem of evil, this like stuff sucks. But yeah. they have trouble with the problem of beauty and more optimistic worldviews um have trouble with the problem of evil because they're like everything's great. Uh, except when it isn't, right? Yeah. And so, you know, the the theology of creation and fall and redemption is a philosophical arc that holds the problem of evil and the problem of beauty and tension. Yeah. And it just takes reality seriously. Mm-hmm. And so, I think that that's kind of why I really appreciate that both the prophets and the letters are written in these really tumultuous times. A because they can be read really. Um, helpfully in tumultuous times. There isn't a lot of biblical literature that's written during good times. And it was like, hey, good times, go read the Psalms, read Philippians. Um, (laughs) But the rest of the Bible is for like the the reality of the fact that we live in a world that's beautiful and broken. And you're going to live in that tension the rest of your life. And if you take a pessimistic or an optimistic turn, you turn away from reality. Yeah. Um, and so I think that like hard skepticism is far too pessimistic and has a real problem of beauty. But like what I would what I would call like hard optimism or like kind of the Elmo effect that everything's great. Everything happens for a reason. You know, look for the silver lining. Um, you're going to have a hard time with reality. Yeah. You know, we live in a world that is theologically fallen. And so learning to live in that world um, and find beauty in it, but also kind of recognize the brokenness and, you know, build resilient communities in the context of that brokenness is that's the story we live in. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Everyone who was at the first sort of interfellowship event, the campus pastors were going through Valley of Dry Bones passage in Ezekiel. And one of the things I said was that like the people of God have always tried to hold on tightly to two very important realities that like the world is hurting and the world hurts. And and so we want to feel that pain. And we, we, we don't want to ignore that. You know, we, we don't want to pretend it's not there, but also remain resolute that God is good and he sees us and he's restoring the world. And, and if you were to just hold on to one of those things, you would have a very impoverished story. And, um, and so like the people of God, that is sort of our, that's what we see in the scriptures. That's a, a particular theological and just like psychological tension that we try to hold in our minds that can be hard to hold, especially when things are feeling bad. You know, I think maybe that's too why it helps to hear the bad things because it makes me think, oh, okay, yes, I, I, I'm clearly holding on to the bad things happen part of this worldview. And it's harder to hold on to the yes, but God's still here. God still loves us. God is still has a plan for his world. And but when I see that like, oh, yeah, bad things have happened in the past and it's progressed and been redeemed and restored at times, or just we've moved past it or whatever, then it's easier to hold on to the idea and important idea of trust and hope that God still loves us and, and is here for us, you know? And I think that's why the letters are cool. And and the, the minor prophets is they're not speculative documents. They're not saying, hey, if bad things happen, do this. They're writing to actual people at the actual time 
who are experiencing catastrophic events. Yeah. And they're giving counsel to those people in those events at that time. It's not a like, if then flowchart. It's a, hey, this is happening. Yeah. Here's what we think you should do. Um, and so that it, as we read them in our own times, which, you know, honestly could get worse from here. Yeah. Or, you know, in, in 30 years, there could be another period of, of turmoil that makes this one look cute. Yeah. As we read them in those times, it's as if they're written to us. Yeah. And because one thing that I feel nervous about with this conversation is that people might hear it and might hear us trying to minimize the reality of today and just say, hey, it's like, it's going to get better. Like just a p- more Pollyanna, just like, just trust and believe. And that should make it not feel as bad. And I, I don't know what to say other than that's not what we're saying necessarily. But what would you say to sort of that critique of like, well, hey, like this is bad. Like this, a lot of people are not only dying and infected with actual coronavirus, but just dealing with the repercussions and it's not that helpful on the day-to-day to know that previous bad things have happened when my world sort of sucks still. Yeah, and I think that it's important to mourn. The importance of mourning is one of the themes of the scripture. It's one of the themes of the worship literature. And so we would certainly not want to minimize the bad things that are happening. But the thing that the scriptures point to not is that things will always get better. Yeah. You know, every human story ends in tragedy. Yeah. That's how that works. The important like theme of the scriptures is to you know build a resilient and joyful experience through the cycles of stability and instability. That's the canvas that we're painting this work on. And once you kind of come to terms with the fact that you know personal scale and community scale turmoil are the materials of this work of art that we're making, I think it changes the the, the image a little bit. Yeah, that's good. That's good. So it's not like we're saying, hey, you're not special. The time you're going through is not special or hard. It's just we're trying to cast our eyes a little bit on, yes, it's hard right now, but also know that you are embedded in a community that is resilient to these social upheavals. So you're riding sort of a wave that is going somewhere, but we're not suggesting how you should feel about everything, you know, but just to point out that the story is going somewhere and this community is resilient and has been through hard things. And on some level, that can give some comfort. Yeah. And I would just say, like students who are going to college right now, you are special. Yeah. Like this is completely unprecedented and you're incredibly courageous and it's just hard. Yeah. I didn't have to do this. Peter didn't have to do this. You are special, but you are also embedded in a story of people who have done hard things and that have stepped up to times like this courageously and in community and prevail. Yeah, that's great. Thanks for saying that. I totally agree. And if it's okay with you, I might want to just take a pretty hard left turn. I love hard And just change topics. Yeah. And not totally change topics, but so we're moving into the season. We're going to be talking about the letters, the epistles, the shorter books at the end of your Bible. I guess we kind of wanted to spend some time introducing those to you you know, start talking about them in general. And, you know, you've introduced already that they are written into a particular tumultuous context. But, you know, it's a pretty strange thing that up until this point, the the stuff we get in the scriptures is like pretty well crafted and curated and sort of for a more general audience, I suppose. And then we get to the letters and we get half of a conversation of someone's mail. Right. These are these are letters from people to specific communities. And this is what we get for the rest of time for our encouragement and reproof and exhortation and joy, whatever. You know, this is what we get. And it just it's a strange thing, I think. And so why is half the New Testament male? 
This is one of those questions that if you haven't asked it, you should. Right. Yeah, like, right, right, right. Why, why is half my New Testament male? Yeah. Especially in a time where we're talking about maybe ending the post office. Like we're talking about it, like the end of mail. Right. Yeah. Males, is, males under the microscope right now. Yeah. yeah. Mail, mail may be not be a thing for the first time in, I don't know, four millennia. Um, and so the idea that half our New Testament is in fact male is uh, curious. And especially when you have, when, especially when it follows the Gospels, which the Gospels are their own genre. They're a sort of biography. The Gospels are the four books about the life of Jesus. And they're a sort of biography, but really they're, they're a work of art unto themselves. Um, and they're definitely written for general consumption. Whereas then it takes this turn to these letters to churches in particular towns um, to the point that the books have the name of the town. Like, this isn't the book about joy or the book about suffering or the book about patience. This is the letter to the Philippians. Right. Who are they? Where was, what, what's even the name of that town? Is it Filipiano or <laughs> Filipianos? Or, <laughs> Filipiano. You know, like, yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> they make great pizza yeah. there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And, and so at first it seems odd until you realize what the Gospels were. The Gospels were incarnational narratives. They were narratives of this amazing event where God decides to invade Earth as a person, which is really at the center of the story and just kind of boggles my mind every time I say yeah. it. And so the theological term we use for that is incarnational, as in incarnate, right? God con carne, God taking on flesh. Like carne um, asada. It, that, carne yeah, asada. Carne. Right. Yeah, you get flesh, um, meat, incarnate. Yeah. Incarnate, in yeah. meat. And so <laughs> God comes into the world and like inhabits it. It's incarnational. And the letters take up that tradition because the letters aren't these kind of ethereal theological documents. Um, you know, these, these are not um, systematic theologies that someone at a seminary would write. Right. These are incarnational documents written into particular communities responding to particular problems in particular contexts. And so they take on the tradition of God coming to a particular community, living a particular life, and they, they don't suffer from the problem of being irrelevant because they are written into specific context and problems. Right. Yeah. I think what you just said is so important and sounds so simple that there's a chance that people just heard it and kind of say, oh yeah, that makes sense. But I guess the reason why I think it's so important is I think the way that we treat these texts is that they are systematic theology chapters. I think what you just said of like, these are written to the Philippians and the Ephesians and the Colossians, not a chapter on incarnation, on ecclesiology, on uh, sanctification. These, that's not what's happening. You know, it's sort of like if you send me an email and we have some questions about what to do about particular things in college life, I'm not going to list at the top of that everything I believe and everything that's true, but I'm going to respond to you out of what I believe is true and out of what I think is true about the world and what that means for our particular context. And you know, there might even be some wrestling in that email of like, ah, there's these values that we have of, I don't know, like being fun, but also being deeply formational and like, how do we balance these things? But I'm not going into the, hey, here's the mission statement. I don't know. There's lots of things that I leave out, but they are there in the fact that I'm responding to you and like they are in in me and and I have this story in me. And and so it's much more like that than it is if I were to be writing a letter to a new student and they ask me a question like, what does it mean for Jesus to be 
man and, and fully God, you know, that it would be more of a just theological treatise, you know, it would just be a here's the answers to your question kind of thing. But that's not what we get in the letters. The letters are not that the letters are not little theological essays. And I think that we treat them that way often, like we think specifically the letters, they have these really great one liners, they have these really great, beautiful yeah. statements, you know, um, I wish I could come up with one on the top of my head. But you know, um, it's by grace, you've been saved, you know, not by works or whatever, you know, like in, in Ephesians too. And um, it's funny because Paul would simultaneously be great and terrible Twitter at the same time. Yeah, Like he yeah. has these unbelievable pithy eight word statements, but they're embedded in a half page sentence. <laughs> yes. Oh my goodness. The long sentences are unreal. And so anyway, I think that is really, really, really important that these are hyper contextual letters. But again, it's sort of like, okay, well, if I could choose what's going to be useful for the rest of time, I'm not sure I would choose that style, you know? And okay, yeah, that might be very helpful to these particular letters. But if I'm God sort of setting up this holy book for the rest of time, it doesn't seem super efficient to have that be the way that this wisdom is passed down. And yeah, I don't know. I, I guess it's asking the question of then what's going on? Like, why Why do we have this? It'd be better if we had at least the other side of the conversation so we could see sometimes we don't even know exactly what issues these biblical writers are addressing. We have to infer them based on reading the texts, you know? And I think that's actually a really important empirical observation that letters are not a common feature of holy books. Like, this is not something that as people sit down to write a holy book, um, that they tend to sit down and write. Yeah. And I think that part of it is that people didn't tend to set out to write theology in the early church that was going to be authoritative. They actually looked back on things that were written and said, you know, that is consistent with the story of Jesus. Um, it worked. And we kind of agree that there's something going on with this text that's more than just a smart and somewhat socially awkward man being right. That actually we think that, you know, for all of Paul's rough edges, that God actually did something special and worked through him. And this letter is more than a letter. It's something that we should base things on. So like, I think that first of all, um, just the way the canon came to be formed as the church recognizing things that were authoritative rather than someone sitting down and saying, okay, I'm going to write God's words now, um, is an important way to think about that. But then I think the other way is that how do we answer questions now? If I have a question, let's take, for example, um, you know, the I'm writing some code and I run into a problem in writing code which is something that I'm not great at. I enjoy it a lot. And so if I run into trouble writing code, um, I don't go get a .NET or our textbook and start reading it from the beginning. I go to Stack Overflow. Stack Overflow is based on the premise that there are not really very many new questions. That, you know, that basically your teacher was right. If you are thinking of a question in class, you should ask it because other people have the same question. And so the way Stack Overflow works, Stack Overflow is a basically coding help website where you can find the question that you can almost always find your question and then a series of answers in relative helpfulness. And uh, that's, that's just the way that we find answers to problems. And so the way the epistles work is that they assume that there really aren't that many new questions. And it's easier to deal with hard questions by looking at how a comparable question was answered rather than having premises and vague principles and arguing from vague principles. 
So, okay, let me see if I follow what you're saying. So you're saying that in writing the epistles and the letters, they were sort of assuming that there's not many novel new questions or the way that we approach them now is that, hey, we might be dealing with sort of different things than they were dealing with, but they sort of laid the groundwork for how to address these things. And so that's why it's still helpful for us. Yeah, I think the latter, because I don't okay. think I don't think that Paul was writing Philippians to me. Right. Holy Spirit. I think knew that Paul was writing Philippians to me, but I don't think Mm -hmm. Paul knew. But I think that, you know, as the spirit was developing the canon and as the church was recognizing the canon and, you know, what was scripture, that this cluster of letters became important because it recognized this idea that there are very few, very truly new questions. Mm -hmm. And so most of the things that we encounter um, in this group of letters that was embedded in the time, kind of the first time that the church asked the question, okay, Jesus was amazing. He defeated death. Jesus should definitely be the model of our life going forward, except he lived in a Jewish agrarian setting. Yeah. And I live in a Roman city with a higher human density than Mumbai. Um, And so it's going to look different. Yes. Yeah. And so the letters are the first attempt of the church to say, okay, it's going to look the same in some ways, Mm -hmm. but different in others. Mm -hmm. And so walking us through that process is also the process in which it walks us through the way that our lives will also look the same and different. Yeah, I think what the letters are doing is they are taking what is true of the Old Testament and the Gospels, which is happening in a hyper Jewish context. Everything being used to tell the story of Jesus is very understandable in that particular Jewish context. But if we remember from way back in the beginning, God did not just want to restore the Jewish people. God always wanted to go to the nations and and bless the whole world. And so what the letters are doing and what the apostles are doing through the letters is that they are essentially improvising into these new contexts. So they're taking a particularly Jewish story and they're improvising essentially how does this this story, how do we have fidelity to the story in context of an entirely different culture with entirely different norms, all of that, and translating essentially the story into these new contexts, which is exactly what you said. And so why I think it's helpful for us and to answer the question we were talking about before of like, how is this male thing even useful for us is that what we see the first attempt, just like you said, the first the first um, successful translation of this Jesus story into new context. And what are we doing? Like, what is our role? We are continuing that tradition and we are translating this Jesus story into brand new contexts. And if we want to know how to do that, well, we have a guide and they are the epistles. We can go back to these epistles and see how did they work through this? How did they take this ideas about Jesus as king and turn them into teaching and instruction and um, ways forward into you know the, this new context? And so that's how we're approaching these things as well. Yeah, that's. I think that's exactly right. That's the answer to the question, why is half of my New Testament male? Yeah. And I think that the thing that has impressed me with the Christian worldview since I my conversion basically is that it is simultaneously firm and flexible. And again, any worldview has to hold those two things in tension. Mm -hmm. You know, there are certain bedrock principles of the Christian faith that are as true today as they were for Paul or Abraham, right? That they simply don't change. Mm -hmm. Um, And it doesn't matter the context. They're non-negotiable. They're firm. Can you give me like an example of that? Just so we're clear. Love the Lord your God with all your 
heart, mind, soul, and strength. Yeah. It was central to the, the mosaic uh, community. It's central to the Jesus community. It was central to the Pauline community. So that like um, context might change, but that idea will be consistent. And if it's going to be sort of Christianity or following this God, it's going to have that element. That's right. The Christian story is love-centered, but it, it's not kind of a smushy, kind of self-defined love-centered. It is centered on the specific creator of the universe and the things that that creator of the universe values. And it is holistic with um, all of the aspects of the human person. Yeah. That's just kind of bedrock. So there's a great book, The First Urban Christians um, by Meeks. And he points out that the population density of Antioch was 193 people per acre. As I mentioned earlier, the most densely populated urban center in the world right now is Mumbai, mm -hmm. which is 187. Oh, wow. It was more densely populated than any urban center right now. This like mass of humanity that were shoved into these ancient cities, like it's a reality that kind of demands that the gospel takes certain incarnational aspects, yeah. right? To live into that urban center that would be very different than the the founder fishermen. Mm -hmm. And so the, the Christian worldview is firm, but also flexible to help people love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength in a, you know, urban hovel of Antioch yeah. or in a college town during quarantine and fires in you know northern california right and instead of giving principles for the first century roman world that would immediately be obsolete once rome falls what we see in the second half of the new testament is the first case study this is the first case study of what it looks like to have this firm and flexible worldview that is in some ways unchanging but also adaptable to new settings. Oh, um, yeah. And how do you wrestle through that? How do you wrestle through what's firm and what's flexible? And so we get this first case study, and then that first case study is applicable to every future case study because it isn't a set of propositions that go obsolete. It's a story that can repeat again and again. Yeah. Okay. 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 Let me see if I have an analogy based on a, a recent encounter in my life. Okay, so one thing you should know about both of us is that we're no, we're not what you would call handymen. We're not people who do things our own selves. We are people who uh, find someone else who's talented and either pay them or ask a favor <laughs> to fix our things. And so we have had a toilet that has been running for like a month or two. And I keep thinking, oh, I got like, call someone, talk, call my father-in-law, you know, tell me how to fix this. Right. Anyway, it hasn't kept us up at night because we're running fans because it's a million degrees, but that's about to change. It's going to get colder. And so I was thinking, I got to, I got to try this out. And so I had the idea, like, I'm just going to go to YouTube. I'm going to see if I can do this. And so this is risky for someone like you and me, it's vulnerable place to be. Cause what right. if we fail, right. what if we ruin the toilet anyway? So I watched this video, first video I watched, and it seems like this guy's like the plumber guy. I type in like how to fix your running toilet. And it's this sort of big bald man and very professional video. And it sort of teaches me what you want to do is you want to check the flapper. I suppose that's a part of a toilet. And you want to check to make sure. Sounds like a dance from the 20s. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right, right, right. And you want to make sure that the seals are right. And uh, and then if it's not that, then maybe it's sort of a, a, a deeper issue that you got to check out. And so I go to my toilet and I'm like, okay, this seems sort of simple enough. And But I'm still scared. I'm like, how do I know if the seal's not working? I don't exactly know how I'm going to know that. And I'm assuming that the toilet he was working on, not precisely your toilet. Well, yeah. Well, that's what I'm getting at. I'm getting at. So I go to my toilet. I open the lid and it just is, it's a totally different, totally different view. You know, there's, there's nothing else. I don't have the little like flapper thing, which looks like, which looks like a mini toilet seat actually. Um, and it's like a red little flapper thing that 
it's the flusher. I, I don't know. I don't know the parts, but um, I have this big cylinder in the middle of my toilet tank. And so I don't know what the heck's going on. And so if I look at my model, and I Google a video for that. And it's this much less professional looking video. And it's just this guy who goes and, and does basically the exact same thing on my toilet. And I realized it's like, yeah, I guess that guy was helpful. But really the first video, even though it wasn't actually my toilet, pretty much told me everything I needed to know. Like my issue was a seal issue, which I guess, yeah, it was helpful to maybe see exactly where the seal was on my toilet. But really all the principles were there from the first video, the really well done, well produced video about not my toilet. You know, all the principles for how I should have gone about fixing the toilet were there. So even though the toilets weren't exactly the same, the same problems were there and the same solutions to the problems were there, even if like the actual physical features looked different. And so, yes, all I did was fix a seal and now voila, no more running toilet. I fixed it. I did it. And so it's it seems similar. It's like for if you think about this, <laughs> toilets equal epistles and problems. But it's like, yes, the epistles are not necessarily dealing with precisely the same variant of issues that we're dealing with. But they've showed us what it looks like to fix a toilet. You know, like pretty much, yeah, most of the time when you fix a toilet, it's going to look like this. And yeah, I think parts might look different, but you're going to want to look for seals. Notice in your context where that might be an issue and try to fix it that way. So it's not exactly, hey, open the lid and look at that cylinder, but it's it's something more general, but also exceedingly helpful. Yeah, I think that's right. Videos that aren't as interested in the model of the toilet, but how do you fix a toilet? I think is exactly what we're dealing with with the letters here. Yeah. The particular sexual drama that's going on in First Corinthians, we don't actually even know the details of it because, you know, we don't want to get out of First Corinthians that this particular sexual drama is a problem. We want to get out of First Corinthians how to deal with sexual drama. Yeah, 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 yeah. The specific nature of the ethnic tension or racial tension in Galatians is a little bit hard to reconstruct. And it's because... We don't want to just have a rule about this kind of racism is wrong. We want to have a general framework with which to deal with racism in our own own hearts and our own communities. Oh, that's Um, good. And so it becomes a case study that helps us project the firm principles into the flexible context. Yeah, it's like in this toilet example, then it's probably better for me in my future toilet fixing days to know the general principles for sort of all toilets kind of thing, as opposed to really just knowing how to do my particular toilet. Because like, what if I'm on vacation somewhere and there's a running toilet and now knowing sort of how to fix a running toilet is a much more useful and much more future useful thing than just how to fix my particular toilet super well. And I, I guess there are times when maybe more specialization is needed. You know, there might be times when it's like, okay, this issue seems so far afield from anything that was talked about in the epistles. So maybe we're going to have to like dial in and study really hard this particular thing. But for the most part, we are given the the case study that can be helpful going forward. And that's the project of practical theology. Yeah. The, you know, the project of practical theology is, you know, we have some, I'm not even thinking about current novel problems, but, you know, in my children's lifetime, in these students' lifetime, genetic engineering, um, AI, these things are going to pose some pretty thorny moral and theological issues that will seem pretty distant from Paul's letter to the Colossians. And so there will have to be grace in the community as they translate the principles to the current context, as different people make different decisions about what's firm and flexible. But the same process is there where we're going to take the fundamental beauty and truth that emerges from the incarnation of God entering into the universe and just shaking things up completely. 
and helping us understand how to live this life in this beautiful and broken world. Yeah. And then we'll watch the first church try to instantiate that into a turbulent time. And then we'll try to instantiate it into this turbulent time, yeah. into a future turbulent time where genetic engineering is becoming problematic, into another future turbulent time where maybe AI has us worried, into another future turbulent time where things we can't even imagine have arisen. Uh, this is the way the church works. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. And so next week we're starting with the first of these letters. We're going to start with the book of James, I guess the letter of James. And so if you want a little head start, um, you can go ahead and read that and we'll talk about it on Tuesday night and then have a conversation coming out. I think that's another feature of these books is that they are letters. And honestly, you know, apart from Romans and Corinthians, you can sit down and bang it out in like 22 minutes. Yeah. And Actually, if I'm studying a letter, sometimes I'll read it each day for a week. Uh That's the kind of scale they're at. And even Romans, you can read it, you know, a couple chapters a day, you can get through it in a week. So as we do this, just read them, just go in there and read them. And uh, I I just think that will be the most fun thing to do. Yeah, totally. James, I think is five chapters. Knock it out. Um, Should we move to some some quarantine uh, corner? Yes, let's do that. Let's do it. Okay. I think that I went first last time. And so... Uh, why don't you go first? I guess a quick reminder, what we're doing here, we're giving some recommendations for you of how to pass your time in quarantine. And hopefully you can finally go outside in, in when, by the time you're listening to this. But if not, then maybe we will give you some uh, some ways to pass your time indoors as well. Who knows? But we're giving you the good content you're looking for here at Quarantine Corner. So Stanford, what is your Quarantine Corner this week? Okay, so my Quarantine Corner comes with a repentant confession. Um, I have not been entirely honest with our community during Quarantine Corner. I'm supposed to be telling you how I'm passing my time during quarantine. And the truth is, is that I have not told you the number one thing that I have been doing because I'm embarrassed about it. This is beautiful. The truth is, I don't have a lot of quarantine time. We're doing the like distance learning thing. So parents of young children, um, there is not a lot of excess time during quarantine. There's actually less excess time. But my Quarantine Corner is (laughs) chess.com. Um, <laughs> so let me let me tell you the story. I was a uh, chess player in high school. I might have been the undefeated captain of the chess club, which is not saying much. We didn't do tournaments. I just beat all my friends. And sometimes I will make rooms uncomfortable by asking them this question. Who would like to guess what was the first thing that I gave up after I became a Christian? And of course, people get uncomfortable because they like imagine some sort of profligate sexuality or some sort of uh, you know, porn addiction or something like that. They, they will not answer the question. Because um, the answer is chess. I gave up chess <laughs> because I could not disentangle it from my personality. You know, if you lose at a card game if you lose at poker you can it can be a bad yeah. beat if you lose at chess you've just been and they conquered you they they were the parthians coming in on their their horses <laughs> that's, right. that's right and i could i just couldn't disentangle so during quarantine one of the things that i did is during lunch we would do alternate chess camp and coding camp with my kids half the days i would teach them a chess principle and then they would play a game and then half the days we would do some sort of coding class online and so we've been doing that on chess.com and chess.com is amazing because it apparently um chess has seen a a revival over the last 12 months during quarantine for a couple of reasons one is because we're all stuck inside and people like me are rediscovering their passion for chess and the second is it's really caught on on twitch the big online gaming company just signed the number one speed chess gm uh hikaru and this is this is some deep level knowledge this is uh, (laughs) holy smokes 
the reason chess sucks is it takes so long. And the reason online chess is better is because you can play one minute and three minute games. A three minute chess game is the way chess should have been designed to be played because you can get through a game. The engine will go and show you where you made your mistakes. The reason that I recommend chess, I've been playing about 20 minutes a day to keep from addiction. But the reason that I feel like it's good for my soul, even though I gave it up when I was Christian is because I think it's good to lose. I think it's good to have that feeling of being conquered and learn to not take it personally. It's really good for you when you like submit a journal paper and get a lot of aggressive bad feedback. It's really good for you when you ask someone out and they say no. It's good to lose in a low consequence environment. You know, train yourself that that experience it makes you resilient. And so that's actually what I've been doing during my quarantine. I think what worries me about my future is that you are able to always take a quarantine corner. And like, even if it's like not a serious thing, you think about the formational aspects of it. And I don't always do the same. And so I'm wondering when I get to, you know, your, your veteran age, am I also going to be thinking as, uh, as formationally about the hobbies that I'm participating in? I hope so. I think that at my age, when you have three teen or preteen kids, yeah. the time that's available is just so small. Yeah. That you have to choose your hobbies formationally. Yeah. So I, uh, so the fifth anniversary gift is a wooden gift. Katie and I like to track with the anniversary gift titles or whatever. And so I <laughs> went rogue and I bought her a wall chessboard, a wooden wall chessboard. It's like a decorative piece that you could play over time. And, and I was like, oh, this will be fun. Actually, I did sort of think about this. It's like, it's a cool culture thing. Like we have a game on the wall in our family room. It's like people come over and they can have fun playing a game. And, <laughs> and bless her heart, you know, she opened it and it was, it was not love at first sight, but it was trying to console me in my gift giving anxiety. So, uh, so that has been returned to uncommongoods.com. Oh, okay. oh, A very right. good return policy, by the way. Oh, return at any time. Yeah. Excellent. Um, but okay. Katie will also feature in my quarantine corner. So I, I'm not sure this might already be a repeat one, but it really is giving me a ton of joy. And so it just needs to be repeated again. But the um, the great Netflix television classic of our time, BBC classic, I guess should say is back in our lives. And the newest season, season eight of Great British Baking Show is back and it comes out every Friday. And so it's a little bit of the old school, like you have to wait for the nice. episode to come out, which is better. It's, it's better. just better. It's better to have to wait because the anticipation builds and it is just like so <laughs> glorious when it comes out on Friday and we finally get to watch it. Uh, and I told Katie <laughs> last night, I was like, I think I'm going to do a Great Fish Baking Show for Quarantine Corner. Do you think that's a good idea? And she was like, no, because I can't imagine that someone's not watching it. Everyone's got to be watching it. She was like dumbfounded that it could be a recommendation because everyone must be watching it because it's so transcendently wonderful. And um, and so if you're not watching it, I, I the pitch Honestly, the pitch is that there can't be a pitch because it's when I pitch it to you, you're going to be like, that sounds dull. And I'm just telling you, it's just the most delightful thing in the world. And I don't know what it is, the perfect combination of like the right people. I don't know. British people are exceedingly good at small talk. I think they collectively have a gift in the whole nation for just being good at small talk. They're just all good on TV. They just are able to like have these like witty, funny 
bantery conversations and, and they make some delicious treats. And for some reason, it is just the biggest delight to watch. And it's precisely what we're not talking about. It will take you away from the hardship of the world and it'll t- transport you to a time of idyllic love and peace. And it's just the emotional register goes from when they are disappointed in, in their bakes and they will say, honestly, I'm gutted. I'm good. I'm really cross with myself. I'm gutted and cross with myself. That's what they'll say. That's or when they win and they get Star Baker, they call their their mom at home or grandma and they do this move. They say, um, yeah, it's been a good week. Um, I've, I've just been made Star Baker. And then they celebrate. And that's what you get at the end of the episode. And um so it's a joy. Great British Baking Show. Cannot recommend it highly enough. I'm almost positive you've never seen an episode of the Great British Baking Show. I mentioned this on a previous Quarantine Corner. We've been watching Nailed It, which is a yeah. lower quality. Is it an American? Is it an American show? It is, but it's like literally lower quality. They get like amateur bakers who mess up. That's like my level of baking prowess. It's something about my kids just enjoy watching people fail, which might be a problem. I see. Hey, maybe because you told them that failing so good. But uh, anyway, that's it for us. Thanks, Stanford, for, for diving in and can't wait to take on James next week. All right, that is it for the pod. I hope you felt the same oxymoronic joy listening to this conversation as I had having this conversation, that your shoulders feel just a little bit freer with the existential dread lifted off of them. And thank you again to Stanford. Man, I always feel like a kid in a candy shop getting to have these conversations with you, soaking up your years of wisdom gathering. And thank you to Kyle Jung and Josh Paskey for the music of your pod and your staff. If I controlled the Grammys, guys, I'd give you one. And thank you to my dear friend Heidi Rudevotes for editing this podcast and making us sound as good as possible. And remember, just head to our website, collegelifedavis.com, or get the College Life Davis app on the App Store or Google Play just to stay in the loop. And to close, College Life, you really should know that we love you more than Jensen Reddy hates a medium rare steak. We'll see you next week.